I know it's technically harder to do, but I'm probably more excited about augmented versus fully virtual. I just feel like the potential to have another dimension of information layer in the real world is so significant. Wonderful subscribers, welcome to the Get In The Mode podcast. Our guest today is a CIO from the commercial real estate space, Patrick McGrath, has done some remarkable things uh, with digital transformation in the industry that often struggles to adopt tech. So we're excited to have Patrick on our show and learn more about the transformation that has, you know, the work he's been able to accomplish. Patrick, welcome to the Get In The Mode podcast. Yeah, thanks, David. It's really exciting to be a part of your program and topic that's near and dear to my heart. So hopefully have something interesting to share with your listeners. I'm sure you, you do. Patrick, for the benefit of our listeners, why don't we kick it off by uh, telling us about Seville, or I don't know how you say it. I'm messing it up probably. Perhaps uh, your company and then about your background and how you came into it. For sure. I like to say travels with Savills. That's a good way to remember the pronunciation of the brand. And I'm proud to be approaching almost 19 years with this organization. And Savills, I guess the headline is we are the world's oldest brand in the property services business. We have a global platform that's been serving a variety of different clients across the globe with uh, commercial property services and residential property services since 1855. I actually started my career with a company that was named Studley Inc. out of New York and was founded by a gentleman, Julian J. Studley, in 1954. His thesis was to drive advisory advantage to commercial tenants across the commercial office sector. And I started my career in 2002 with, uh, with Studley in San Francisco as a market and financial analyst and have had an interesting uh, career trajectory since then. So that's a quick background. I currently oversee the technology function for the North American business as the CIO. I also oversee our research and data services business. And we've built out a, a pretty interesting offering to commercial occupier tenants in this region and have a great team that I work alongside with under that division. So again, excited to be a part of the conversation today. That's awesome. You know, when I went, you and I had a little bit of a briefing call, you've accomplished quite a bit. What is interesting to me is how you phrase the, you know, like, commercialization. You talked a little bit about ROI outcomes and results, which is really what we talk a lot about, you know, in our Get In The Mode podcast. So I want to understand what is your approach to digital transformation? Maybe we'll start there to kind of understand some of the methodologies and techniques that how you see digital transformation happening. Yeah, well, I mean, look, we have to un unpack what digital transformation is, right? So we could spend a little bit of time on that. I think, you know, in general, I would say my approach is maybe in some ways non-traditional in that I'm not 
sort of your stereotypical CIO. I really didn't set out at any point in my career to have this seat. I ended up in this seat because I saw a need to really step in and bridge certain gaps and really take our platform forward. I came from the business side. So I worked you know, as a market and financial researcher in the beginning of my career. I worked on the brokerage and advisory side for a decade. I went back, had the privilege of getting an MBA in finance and real estate finance from the Wharton School and ran the post-merger integration of our North American business when we sold to Savills in 2014. So I had a, a lot of different perspectives as I've gone through that arc. And um, for me, you know, the world is just continuing to move at a faster and faster pace. So bringing a mindset of like continuous learning, curiosity, and really driving for better results means that I'm constantly sort of testing new theories. And, and I have theses in terms of like where tools could be helpful in terms of just making me and my team as productive as possible. And, and then meeting the needs of clients in our marketplace as their expectations shift, given all of the advancements that are happening across every sector right now. So I think you know that curiosity is a really important attribute. But when we think about digital transformation, I mean, you have to think about the transformation piece, right? So there's a lot of change management that happens. And from my perspective, having a structure around understanding who is potentially impacted, why they should care, you know, what timeline we're talking about and sort of what the urgency for change is over which periods of time. I think that's a really important place to start and to have a clear view and perspective on. And then really thinking about, you know, the how you're going to accomplish in terms of the approach strategy. And I've got a lot of different lessons learned both in the office as well as outside the office in terms of benefits of either almost sort of the large scale team approach versus the, I call it like the alpinist, you know, very nimble, quick approach and testing things. And I think, you know, at different points in projects, different approaches are useful. And then thinking about the culture that you're going to build who is a part of that journey that you're making in terms of the change management and the transformation that you're trying to affect. I'd say just continuing to bring a rigor around testing your hypotheses, testing your own sort of perspective on things and keeping that open mind and curiosity as a North star in terms of continuous learning. You know, that's been something that's really important to me. So there's a lot to unpack there in terms of digital transformation, I guess, From my perspective, technology is an enabler. And when you have a problem that is significant for an important set of constituents, technology can be a really useful way to what I call like imagineer a new approach that drives value to those constituents. But again, kind of goes back to a lot of the rigor around assessing how big the problem is, how important the the problem is, and how urgent, you know, people are going to perceive the problem to be in terms of driving that transformation and change management process. So a lot to talk about there, but those are some yeah. initial thoughts from my side. No, definitely. I appreciate the, you know, you talked about the mindset of continuous learning and having curiosity, right? That's the culture portion of it. And then you also talked a little bit about the impacts, like 
who gains and benefits from it and how do we go about it, which is also, you know, I definitely want to talk about adoption and things like that later. But before we get there, one thing that from your response, I want to follow up on this is you've got a business background, right? You were kind of in the commercial real estate space seeped in it. And then obviously with the finance degree and things like that, everything's got trade-offs. If somebody comes from a technology background, they're going to bring in certain expertise. You know, maybe you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of each, right? From your experience, what you have observed, what do a CIO with a technological background do really well? What does a leader who's got a business background do really well? What have you seen them? And perhaps what can they cross-pollinate from each other? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I agree with you. I think it's trade-offs. It's also blind spots, right? So I think just the self-awareness is an important aspect of leadership and just being authentic to kind of where you add value and where you maybe need partners to support you. So I would think about it, you know, from a technology perspective, there's a, there's certainly a value that can be brought to really like stress testing, code base, understanding the nuances of configuration, building credibility with a team that really values those traits, right? Sort of speaking the language. There are times when I'm working with our team and it's almost like you're in the shop, you know, there's a lot of like shop talk. So being able to speak the language is definitely an enabler in terms of building credibility, which then leads to trust. And I think that's something that people in this role with a rigorous technology background probably could do in very effective ways. What I think what's unique about my perspective and kind of how I can add value to somebody like that is the cutting through to kind of the end state and being the consumer and being the end user, as well as being the person that's going to deliver it to the client. And I think that, you know, there's some real magic in terms of just being in the room. In our world, I would say to junior people, you know, when we go into a big pitch, there's only a certain number of seats in the room. And there's a question that kind of happens, like, why are you in that seat? So it's hard to get into that seat. And increasingly, I guess I've benefited both from the finance background as well as from the technology background of being able to be in that seat because others can't really speak and sort of bridge the, the language from like the business side to the technical side. But by being in that seat, I can gain incredible insights as to whether or not the assumptions that are being made in the shop are actually market realities. And I think there's frequently a, a big disconnect there. And I think especially as organizations that have been maybe in the marketplace for a longer period of time than some of these newer organizations, as they try to make those pivots, one of the biggest challenges that they have is really reframing what they view as technology within their organization and, and making that bridge to the business side and really being viewed as a partner and somebody that's really driving top line results for the organization versus a cost function is, I think, paramount to really driving that digital transformation that you talked about, because ultimately these investments that we're making and the resources that we're allocating, you know, if they're not driving 
top line or at least like margin improvement, it's hard to make the case that they're continuous investments that we're going to be able to make with uh, great returns to stakeholders. So I think, yeah, those would be some initial observations in terms of how I've seen value created from my side versus maybe a more technically proficient CIO. I don't want to say I'm not technically proficient. I just say technically trained. That's probably better. Yeah. 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 Let's kind of move further in the transformation, right? So when we talk about transformation, it all starts with a digital roadmap that's strategic, right? Now you have successfully done cloud migration. Again, that's part of a bigger strategic roadmap. You know, you just don't do cloud migration for cloud's sake, you know, just because everybody else is doing it, right? So my question to you is, as a tech leader, what are some critical factors that you need to have within a digital roadmap for it to be successful? I think, I mean, from my perspective, a coherent view about why we're doing what we're doing and taking a step back, you know, when I think about our platform, I think about there's two layers of thinking around kind of who your clients are, right? I mean, I could say we have, I almost bifurcate them. It's kind of who does the plat when we put together the right platform with the right thought leadership and advisory teams, we then go out to market to clients that in North America generally are corporate occupiers. So we're very clear about which segment of the market we're addressing. And similarly, I'm very clear with the internal team about the internal constituents and those, you know, the advisory teams that we're serving. So I think being clear about who your customer segment is is part of having that vision laid out. And then it's kind of like, what is the world going to look like for them over the next five to 10 years? And I think you'd be hard pressed. I mean, you would have been very hard pressed in 2009, 2010 with the adoption that was happening across mobile, whether it was Android or iOS as kind of the base level operating system to make, you know, to not be aware that like that's going to be a place where a lot of business gets done, right? From a day-to-day basis, your people are going to be operating on with that hardware in their hand and those operating systems in place. So I think, you know, for me, it was kind of clear that if that was the case, you know, we really needed to be serving them across that mobile environment. And to do that effectively, we would need to have more cloud systems set up because we weren't going to be able to do that effectively in the app ecosystem that they were going to operate in without having those cloud partners in place. So I think, you know, just sort of, again, having a clear view that has been stress tested and that you have buy-in at the business level or where you're solving for, you know, five, six, seven, 10 years down the road, I think is a key part to really driving that roadmap forward to just have a roadmap sake that, you know, doesn't go to a place where the business wants to get to. I think, you know, that's, it's like a good effort, but it's hard to imagine that you're going to have the kind of momentum and adoption that you really need from the top all the way down through the organization to continue to sustain the level of investment that you're realistically going to need to make to be successful on those outcomes. Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely, you know, the vision driving that vision and then also getting the leadership buy-in, right? It's not just a CIO, you know, initiative. It's basically the whole leadership should be on board. Completely agree with that. Yeah, thank you for that insight. Now, obviously, you know, as much as we all like to think we are magicians and everything goes right 
once we wave the wand, magic wand. Uh, I'm sure you have had battle scars. I'm curious to learn what lessons you've learned from uh, cloud migration. Picking the right partners is definitely both science and being realistic about kind of where you fit in the ecosystem and, you know, what you're bringing to the table as a partner, I think are important aspects to selecting the right partners and getting good outcomes across that, you know, those various different initiatives. And by the way, the point that I made around getting the executive buy-in, I mean, that's like, everybody knows that, but it's one thing to say, it's another thing to do it. And I think doing it it's hard. I mean, that's why, you know, so many organizations continue to struggle with that, despite knowing that it's something they should do. From a cloud migration perspective, I think, you know, the talent piece, right? Like sort of uh, shifting your talent base forward and getting the right talent on board, both with the internally and externally as part of your partner ecosystem is one of the bigger challenges that I think many organizations face. You just got to be very realistic about it. I don't see it getting any better anytime soon. From our perspective, again, like having the right balance of internal versus external is a key aspect to driving forward with success rather than thinking that you're going to get the right talent just solely hired internally. You know, for some organizations, that's probably realistic. For other organizations that really aren't, competing to be best in the world in that space, it's hard to imagine that you're going to make a compelling case for the best talent to come aboard. I think that's been probably a key lesson learned from my side. Yeah. Just, I mean, uh, I'm curious, the reskilling portion of it, you know, be it internal teams or the partners that you may have to work with in the future from the asses to the future state. I'm curious what approaches have worked. Do you have any insights for other that you can share with other leaders? Well, one, it's hard. I think anybody who inherits a legacy team faces challenges in terms of shifting people's perspectives and kind of moving people forward in ways that encourage them to not necessarily work harder, but work differently. And I think that's at times one of the bigger challenges that, that leadership teams have. So we could talk quite a bit about that. You know, on some level, I think you have to be realistic about not everybody who got you today is going to potentially be the right fit to get you to where you need to be in five years and balance that reality with the folks that do have a willingness or have a capability to kind of evolve with you and make that part of the journey with you, you know, getting them the right resources and encouraging them to buy into the vision for, again, the change management. Like, why do we need to make these changes and how are we going to do that? And how are we going to ultimately make you a, a more valuable resource and uh, asset to both the organization? you know, that we're sponsoring as well as potentially other organizations that you may go on to serve as part of whatever your career arc is. And I think from my perspective, it's an interesting framing exercise to not necessarily think about everybody as being like your forever partner, right? But these, I mean, they could be your partner for three years. They could go do something and they could come back. They could go be a partner somewhere else. To me, I think like having the flexibility to think about those team members in that way 
is helpful and useful. And if you get sort of too locked into like, we all as currently configured today are going to have to force our way to get to where we need to be in five or 10 years. I think it makes it more challenging because not everybody is going to sort of make that journey with you. So that's been something that I feel like I had to be very realistic about. I also think there's something to be said for just continuing to get like new minds and new energy and almost like the blood pumping in the team through all sorts of fun exercises like, hey, let's put in place an internship program, right? Where we're going to have young, talented people who are going to come interface with this part of the business. They're going to work for us for a summer, two summers, and they're going to go on to do great things and bring fresh perspectives to how we're approaching certain challenges. And we actually have a digital product that has come to market and resonated with clients that was created by an intern in six weeks when the legacy team literally was telling me like it can't be done and it was going to be you know, a significant investment in the millions of dollars to do it. And the intern was able to do it in six weeks. So you see things, you know, and I think that's a really refreshing and fun sort of energy plug into the team. And that's something that you really have to think about how you're shaping those interactions, both across like outsourced teams, intern type programs, new recruits, and um, yeah, and just encouraging people to make the investment in themselves to get to where, wherever they want to go. Yeah, I mean, I think a fresh perspectives, people with fresh set of eyes who come in and then also, you know, kind of goes back to what you said earlier about the mindset of continuous learning. Like it's not just as a IT as an organization, but also internally people as well. I mean, obviously it's, it has to be organic. So completely agree there. So we've talked about the internal IT side of the house. Let's kind of now go to the business side of the house. You know, obviously commercial real estate is a space that's notorious for, you know, where uh, t- CIOs often struggle with uh, tech adoption, right? When we talked about our briefing earlier, you had mentioned that Salesforce, you were able to get an adoption rate that was above 70% or 75, I think is what you said. Tell us a little bit about that. Like what were some of your struggles? What, uh, how you were able to get past them and, you know, see that as a challenge and uh, work on those objectives. Before we go to that, let me give you my pitch on why I think commercial real estate. I mean, I hear you and I think you're right. And I think that it has been an industry that's been, maybe late to the party in terms of adopting new ways of working and just technology in general or, you know, data. Not to beat them down. Yeah. So yeah, yeah definitely. You're... I'll give you so a couple of notes. I mean, one is the world's largest asset class by dollar value. And I think in that it is an incredible opportunity for differentiation, incredible opportunity for testing an incredible opportunity for advancement in terms of the way that things work. I also just want to touch on not everything needs to change, right? Like some things work very well. And I think that, you know, historically, the way that the trades were made across the asset class, the way that investments were made across the asset class, and the way that leasing and sort of the transaction process occurs across the asset class, it kind of works, right? 
there's also a time frame associated with a lot of the transactions. They're longer term transactions. It's not like they're daily trades like the stock market. So I think there's something to that that probably encourages maybe uh, like a slower pace of adoption. And I think those are important to recognize. But that being said, we're going through one of the single largest, certainly across my career and my history, the single largest transformations in this asset class that we've seen in a generation. I mean, there's a whole new style of working that's happening. There's uh, potentially a significant amount of inventory that's coming back to owners to reposition, relap, resell, reoccupy. The way that employees, talent, and occupiers are gonna expect to interact with the asset class is shifting dramatically because of all the interactions that they're having across consumer technology. And there's a massive push to have a more responsible sort of stewardship across the asset class in terms of climate. So I think you're going to see an incredible pace as we move forward in the next like five to 10 years of how that asset class works. So I'll kind of, that's my sort of hopeful counter to, you know, maybe why it has been what it has been and where we're headed in terms of the CRM system. And Salesforce was our partner that we picked to do that. It could have been Microsoft Dynamics. We do use Microsoft Dynamics in some of our overseas businesses. I think to me, you know, that's sort of a classic case of going back to your initial point, like, well, coming from a business perspective versus coming from a technology perspective. We had come at that problem from a technology and a finance perspective historically. Our competitors came at that from a finance and technology perspective. And their process was impeccable. You know, they used all the frameworks that were out there in terms of like establishing scope and laying out the groundwork and having the roadmap and the milestones and so on and so forth. But I think the big disconnect there is that the design process that they were really establishing, the problem that they were ultimately trying to resolve was much more around creating transparency for financial management teams so that they could have visibility into our Salesforce pipeline and potentially have better forecasting regimen for the business. Great use cases, but none of which really happen unless you get wholesale at scale adoption from the end users. And I think that from my perspective, it was very obvious that we went down that path. We were going to have a lot of resources invested and we'd have this very sort of by the book enterprise technology solution that we would end up rolling out. And when the actual brokerage and advisory teams met that technology, they were going to be like, why do I like, this is just making my life harder versus actually driving value to them. So I think that was a really important sort of reframing that we did in terms of what we were trying to accomplish. And instead of really driving kind of the process from the finance and sort of the technology side of the business, what we really did is we drove the process from the brokerage and advisory side of the business. And we said, you know, if we can create an environment where there is engagement and there is sort of activity around driving more sales, right? Driving more market level connections for a global team that's now come together for the first time and show them how the world is right at their fingertips on mobile, that could be really compelling. And all of a sudden, they could see that they could connect with people in Asia that were chasing similar opportunities. And they could see that the relationship pool was, you know, actually a lot smaller and there were a lot more connection points 
to key decision makers and decision influencers. So we really led with that. And we did a content first strategy there where we brought in a lot of like engaging materials into their real-time data feed so that they were seeing this. And we also did a very interesting thing, which I think is, was smart is we, we didn't roll it out to everybody. We rolled it out to very small teams that were showing an inclination to want to try and be early adopters on this project front. And if they didn't use the tool, we rotated their licenses out and we got more active users in. So what we ended up with was good momentum around a population of early adopters that were active users. And we drove a lot of activity into ultimately we featured the chatter feed or, you know, sort of a real-time information feed. We drove a lot of activity. So there was constant activity happening there. And by the time that we got to kind of the later stage adopters, there was a feeling that if they didn't adopt this, if they weren't really engaged in this tool, then they were potentially missing out. They were becoming dinosaurs. They were, how were they ever going to be effective in terms of really driving growth across their business book or their book of business? if they weren't engaged in the same way that all these early adopters had been and shown proclivity to, to do. So I think there, you know, there's again, a lot to unpack there, but just really reframing the problem and then the uh, tactical execution of focusing on engagement and driving uh, early adopters into the product so that you had a high level of perceived engagement as, as it rolled out. I think we're probably two differentiation points in terms of how we approach that problem versus our competition and really happy about the success. I think we ended up at, oh, and then the other piece, I mean, we got a shout from the Hilltops when we have success. So anytime there was a connection, you know, that made a revenue impact, we had that case study out to everybody. So it was like, look, David, we're making money here. I mean, this is working. This is driving a ton of return back to the business and marketing that in a bold way, pushing that message out. I think that was another you know, key aspect to why that project was successful versus what we had seen at some of the competition with much bigger budgets and good playbooks, you know, totally logical playbooks, but just really not thinking about the problem the way that we were. You know, I, I've heard about the content, you know, kind of showing content, sharing content first. That's kind of tried and tested, but I like something that is new from this is, you know, sort of like your MVP, you're trying that with early adopters and kind of cycling through that. If let's say within the early adopters, let's say 10 users, you know, eight are using it, two or may not be, okay, let's bring in another two uh, that put, could potentially evaluate, right? So it's almost like you're treating it like a startup, like a app that gets published, like, okay, let's kind of see who's using our MVP and kind of gaining some insight from that, right? That's great. Almost like gamifying that a little bit. We did. To, I mean, uh, we, drop, we would drop users if they weren't logging in and, and actively engaging, you know, within the first 30 days and just rotate on to the next batch of users. Yeah. And I think that demonstrates value to the other folks who, like you said, are maybe missing out. They might be like, oh, this team is doing great this tool, right? So yeah, excellent points all around. Now we get into our rapid fire questions. I've got three questions for you. So the first one I would start with is what's a, a book that you've read in within the last one year that's really kind of resonated with you, changed the way you think? Well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Jonah Berger. So I read all his books. I think Contagious, he's got great frameworks. What resonates with people in terms of 
what they remember, messaging, communicating, creating like visceral, using visceral language, ultimately going back to projects like the CRM system, you know, how do you make it more viral? How do you create scarcity? How do you think about social currency of somebody who has access and are they willing to communicate to somebody else? So I found him to be a very useful voice and was lucky enough to have him as a professor. So he's definitely, uh, yeah, I would recommend him and many others, but that's one. Now we know where that secret insight of uh, gamifying comes from, right? So <laughs> that's good. Thanks for the share. Second question is about meta. What do you think is good about it? What do you think it could be scary about it? Well, I mean, I think that um, there's a lot of hype around it right now for obvious reasons. I'm probably... I know it's technically harder to do, but I'm probably more excited about augmented versus fully virtual. I just feel like the potential to have another dimension of like information layer in the real world is so significant. And the big use case there is like, if you could see everybody's names, right? Like then you'd never forget anybody's name. Uh, now, I'm not sure that, you know, you maybe want that, but... I think there's there's just a ton of like interesting learning experiences that could be done with that additional layer, even training, you know, all sorts of training that could be done there. So I'm probably more excited about that. I mean, I think the way that the virtual world will evolve, I think there's a lot to be desired there, but there's a lot of really interesting interactions that could happen there too. I just personally, I mean, I, I find the... Um, yeah, kind of the, the real experiences to be so important. And even this, you know, like if you and I were sitting in a room, there's just a different element to that reality. So I know the meta would make it probably a little bit closer to that, but still not quite there from my perspective. In terms of what's scary about it, I mean, you know, it's early days, but um, you do have to wonder with the organizations that are sort of driving it and their inability to sort of forecast and effectively mitigate challenges within the social media realm that we've seen over the last like decade, you know, are they really, you're adding a whole new dimension. So I guess I would potentially be concerned about the stewards there and how that world is getting set up from that perspective, because I don't know that there's a great track record there to build upon. You know, I think there's constant sort of challenges and still a lot to be desired in terms of how the current basis of their organization really operates. So that would be a concern that I have. Final question. A movie that you watched where you gained a key insight on relationships. I'll give you probably one that maybe wouldn't show up in most of your conversation, but The Hunt for Red October, I think is a very interesting movie. There's a lot of different leadership lessons on both sides of that interaction between the, the Russians and the US. And I, I think there's a really interesting moment when uh, one of the engineers on the US side is, uh, he's sort of testing out some new ways of thinking about like tracking. And he kind of, he got has a little bit of an interaction with the captain, I think, where he pushes back, but ultimately the captain buys in and they're successful in doing that. So 
I don't know. It's just a great, it's like, there's a great little microcosm there of somebody on your team who's got a new way of approaching a problem and just leaning in and like instilling confidence in them that they can do it and having great outcomes as a result of that. So that's kind of a fun, fun one from my side. Awesome. Well, Patrick, it's been a pleasure having this discussion with you. Really grateful for your time and being on the Get In Mode podcast. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.